It is indeed the blood of Jesus that gives us the victory. As we've been looking at the statements of William Booth at the turn of the 20th century regarding what he saw as the dangers to look for, I think you'll see in all of them, he points back to the blood of Jesus Christ. What happened on the cross? As he talked about, first of all, religion without the Holy Ghost. As we saw that the purpose of the Holy Spirit in this world is to not only convict us of sin and show us our error, but to show us the truth about who Jesus is. That he did come to save us and redeem us. That his grace is there regardless of what we have done. And then Christianity without Christ, that we do understand who Jesus truly is. He is the Son of God. He is divine. But he came into the world as a man to lay down his life for us, to be the sacrifice for sin. Because sin had so changed our relationship with God that we didn't even have one. And his blood would take away our sin. When he went to the cross and shed his blood, that was the payment that satisfied the wrath of God so that our sins could be forgiven. And then forgiveness without repentance. That forgiveness comes when we recognize truly that we are sinners. That we need a relationship with God. And the only way we can have that relationship is to have our sins taken away by the blood of the Lamb. And that means we have to admit that we indeed are sinners. That we need to change. And when we recognize that and repent of our sins, show godly sorrow for what we've done, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he declares us righteous, not by any works that we have done, not by how good we are, but by his grace. We are declared righteous in a way that we could never achieve in our own, but he does it for us. That's the cross. Everything centers around the cross. And today we look at that statement, salvation without regeneration. In other words, when we have come to know Christ as our Savior, when he has indeed taken away our sins, then what does life look like? As a Christian, what should we be doing? If we're truly saved, how do we know we're truly saved? Because this is a question people ask all the time. You know, how can you tell if someone's really saved? How do I know if I'm really going to heaven? Well, if you've truly changed, it shows in the way you live. John wrote in his first epistle, in the first chapter, this in verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, John is saying here, if we are truly changed, if we are truly regenerated, then we are different. We become a light. We become a light to the world that shows the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us and change us. To use the phrase most of us use, it means we've been born again. To be born again means that you are a new person. You are changed. You are different. 
Before you came to know Jesus Christ as Savior, you had a way of looking at the world. Paul would write in Romans that we were slaves to sin. Even when we tried to do the right thing, even when we tried to do good, somehow sin would just keep grabbing hold of us and we'd keep messing up. We couldn't really stop it. But when the power of the blood takes away our sin, Paul would say, now we can live a different life. Sin no longer controls us. Sin no longer has a part. And we can be a different group of people. And it should show in the way we live our lives. It should show that the Holy Spirit is working through us. We are different from the world. We are changed. Once we are buried with him in baptism, we say as we baptize people, you've left the old man behind. And you come up out of those waters a new person. So if we are truly saved, we are different. We are different people. And it should be that the world notices that difference. Because if we're truly going to be a light, we should be shining so they can see that we're different. So what does different look like? What does it mean to be a light of the world? That's what we want to talk about this morning. If we are truly saved, how does it show in the way we live our lives and in the things we do? And to look at that, I'm going to use John's writings in the epistles. And I would encourage you this week, because we won't have time to read all of them this morning, that in your Bible reading this week, you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John all the way through. Because he writes about this very question of what our lifestyle should look like. What it really means to be a born-again Christian. In John's day, he lived longer than all the other apostles. And he would see the results of many kinds of false teachers coming into the scene, people getting messed up with different ideas that weren't really the gospel message. And he began to talk about and teach what it meant to live a life where you're a light to the world, what the world needs to see in order to be drawn to Jesus Christ. And he begins by saying that if we're a light, the first thing we have to understand is light shines on the darkness. Chapter 2 of First John, verse 3, he says, We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That means if we're truly safe people, the Holy Spirit should be changing us to be more and more like Jesus every day. Now, the minute we're saved, it doesn't mean we're perfect and we never do anything wrong again. But we should be on the pathway to becoming more like Jesus. And what was Jesus like? Well, Jesus didn't sin. So obviously, if we're saved, we have to have a different attitude towards sin than the rest of the world has. Jesus obeyed his Father. He says if we truly are saved, we understand the word of God, and we obey it, we live by it. And then Jesus treated people so differently. He treated them with a love and compassion that so many others had had not really understood. And so because he was a light, people were drawn to him. 
And John is saying, if we're going to be a light, and if the Holy Spirit is truly working in our lives, if we're truly saved, we are going to have a different attitude towards the world's view of things. And instead, we're going to try to be as much like Jesus Christ as we possibly can. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning, because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. See, what he's saying here, if we're truly saved, if we're truly, truly regenerated, born again, we change our attitude towards sin. Sin can no longer have a place in our lifestyle. Now, we do occasionally sin. We are not perfect people. But what he's saying here is we don't practice sin. We don't just choose to disregard what God says about certain uh, practices and say, well, you know, I don't think that's a big deal. I can do what I want, and it really doesn't matter. No, we obey God's law. And when he says some things are sin, there's sin, and it does not become a part of our lifestyle. Sin is destructive. And if we begin to really view it the way God views it, we see how destructive it really is. Now, Satan wants to paint sin as our choice for a beautiful way to live. That if you do what you want and you don't let other people tell you what to do and, you know, you just make your own choices, that you're just going to have this most wonderful life possible. But sin is a snare. And once it grabs you, it doesn't let go. And it doesn't take you to an abundant life. It actually takes you to death. And when you understand that, you get a different view of what sin is all about, and you don't want it in your life, because the light is supposed to shine on the darkness, not become part of the darkness. As Paul said, it doesn't control you anymore, and so we don't practice it. The church can never be what it is supposed to be in this world if people who claim they are saved practice sin. Now, you might think that's a given. If we're confessing our sins and coming to the Lord and, you know, being changed, that it should seem obvious that we don't sin. But the problem is, too many people that claim they are saved seem to think they can practice sin, and it doesn't really matter. I just got sent information this week from Josh McDowell's ministries. They have finally completed with the Barna Group their survey on pornography in America. 
He's beginning to publish the results. Uh, they're going to have workshops on it, and it's going to be out in just a little bit, all of the findings. To him, the ruination of the church is not our failure to understand doctrine. It's the utter destruction of the family. And pornography right now is the single most destructive force of the family in the world. It is global in its scope. It is a billion-dollar industry that has sucked in so many people that its destructive force is beginning to be felt everywhere. But the amazing things about his statistics is that pornography is more prevalent among Christians than non-Christians. And that says something about the state of the church. Because it's hidden. Because it's just one click away, and that's what he's calling his new uh, approach, one click away. It's easy to get to. You think you can cover it up. You think it doesn't matter. But it is seeping in everywhere and in Christian families. Over 54% of men in the church, according to his survey, now watch pornography at some point. But the greatest inroads of pornography right now are with middle school-age children who are being destroyed before they ever have a chance to understand God's perfect plan for marriage and sex. They are being destroyed before they even begin to understand the direction of their life and its ruining families. Second biggest change you notice is the rise in women watching pornography because it used to be pretty exclusively men, but now it's, it's on the rise and, and more than tripled among women. It's an evil that has to be stopped. And you can't participate in a sin like that and think you're saved. To think that it, Jesus isn't watching or it doesn't matter. Because to fuel that industry, people across the globe are being enslaved in sex trafficking rings just to produce what you want to watch for whatever reason you want to watch it. Infants are now involved in pornography videos. Infants. It's an evil industry fueled on the backs of people who cannot be helped. The poor, the children, the women. People enslaved through no fault of their own to a group of people who simply want to make money on their backs. And every time you watch it, you support that industry and you support the enslavement of innocent people. And we are not shining a light by enslaving innocent people just to gratify ourselves for whatever reason you think you might want to do it. Pornography will not spice up your marriage. It will destroy it. It will destroy your children. It will destroy everything about the family. Yet it is more prevalent in the church than in society at large. John said we change our attitude towards sin. And if we don't change our attitude towards sin, 
then the church has lost all its effectiveness. It is no different than the world, and it is not going to draw people to Jesus Christ. The Barna Group's new findings now find that particularly among the generation under 25, there is such a growing gap between the way they look at the world and the way older people look at the world that this gap has not been bridged in quite a long time. Most people under 25 in a survey now thought that failing to recycle was a greater sin than living together before marriage. Now, I'm all for recycling. We have a recycling bin in our house. But that is nowhere near the same level as fornication. Fornication is actually mentioned in the Bible several times. I have yet to find recycling there. Yet our next generation somehow thinks recycling is one of the top seven evils of the world, failing to recycle. Something's wrong with the way we're teaching sin. Something's wrong with the way we're reaching the next generation. Something's wrong with the whole way we look at what sin is all about when we think that doesn't matter. Most people under 25 now think that vows at a marriage altar don't mean anything, that they're situational, they're only good as long as it works, but it's not for life. No matter what they said, and everybody knows you don't, you just say that because you're supposed to say it. It doesn't mean anything. And, and so we sin by the oaths we take and the vows we take we never intend to keep. And the divorce rate in the church is indeed parallel to the rest of the world. There's no difference. And of course, now same-sex marriage has come into the scene. And the great majority of Christians do not think it is a sin anymore. In fact, you can go to churches where everybody is a professing gay person. And they think they are blessed by God and they can worship God and God is pleased with the praise that they give them. We need to change our attitude towards sin. We need to get a hold of what the commandments of God are truly all about. Because Paul said it as well as John. In 1 Corinthians 6, he said, don't be deceived. There is no fornicator that will go into the kingdom of God. There is no adulterer that's going to enter the kingdom of God. There is no homosexual. There is no thief. There is no liar. There is no swindler. There is no gossiper. There is no one who practices these sins that can say they are saved. You are not going in to the kingdom of God if you practice these things. Now, Paul said, some of you used to do these things. But if you have confessed your sin and God has been faithful to forgive your sin, then you're saved, but you can't go back to it. You have to stop the sin. And if we are going to be an effective church, a church that shines light into the darkness and makes a difference, then we have to change our attitude towards sin. Chapter 5, verse 18. John said, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who has been born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. See, the Holy Spirit leads to repentance, those who are truly saved. And when you belong to God, yes, we will have days when we are not perfect and we sin. But if you are truly born again, 
you know you did the wrong thing, and you feel guilty about it. If it's bad enough sin, you should be ashamed of it because you know you did the wrong thing. And then you should go to God and confess it and say, oh, boy, I'm trying to do better. I know I messed up. Help me, Lord, you know, to do better. I want to live like Jesus, but, boy, am I far away from that. You know, help me. But we don't stay there and practice it because it's not part of our lifestyle if we're truly a light and we're truly saved. To say you're saved and practice sin is what salvation without regeneration is really all about. It means you haven't been changed on the inside. You haven't yet got a different way of looking at the world. And so you continue in your old habits, you continue in your old ways, and nobody sees anything different about you. You look just like the world. That's not a light. After he's saying that the light shines on darkness, the second thing he makes a point of is that light shines in relationships for people that are saved. Chapter 2, verse 9. He says, If anyone claims I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. The church is supposed to be an example of how people get along with each other. People that are saved who love each other and have the compassion and love of Jesus Christ show it by the way they interact with the people in the church. And so the church is to be the model of what a society looks like that has been regenerated by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That means our close friendships have to be among the people of God, people that we can talk to about God, people that we can go to when we need prayer, people that can help us as we uh, go through the difficulties of life because we're here for each other, we help each other. As they said on the day of Pentecost, the church should not be divided by any of the divisions the world holds. Not by race, not by ethnic background, not by male, female, not by rich or poor. We are one because Christ has called us. We didn't decide to just come here. Jesus Christ put us here by his saving grace. And if Jesus loved the people sitting next to you enough to save them, then you should love them too because he found something in them worth saving. You should find something worth about liking them and getting along with them. And making a difference. See, we are family. We're the family of God. But the church isn't perfect. We know that. And so it gets attacked a lot. It gets attacked because it is the example to the world. So if the church fractures, like a family fractures, then it's ineffective and it won't make a difference in society. But all kinds of people who claim they are saved don't want to be part of the church. I don't need to belong to a church that's it. No, I can pray at home. I can read my Bible at home. I can watch TV at home and watch those people. You know, I don't really need to go to a church. I've been to church. All, all that's in church is hypocrites anyway. I, I can find unsaved people that are nicer than church people. And, and actually, that can actually be true. But that's not the point. <laughs> Some people say, I don't get anything out of church. I don't know. I don't even like it. I don't know why I go. And then, of course, a great attack on anything that's even thought to be organized religion. 
Because organized religion is like the bane of everything. That's the worst possible thing that could happen to anybody to be part of it. Just rules, regulations, nobody cares, nobody loves, nobody... When you get into that mode, you're going to miss what he's talking about when he says to love the brothers and sisters that are in the church. What does love look like? Well, he tells us in chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, love is not just an emotion or something we say, I love you. It's the way we treat people. It's shown in our actions. And John says, if we truly love each other, we're going to be there for each other. We're going to help each other. We're going to show compassion to each other. We're going to pray for each other. We're not going to be people that don't care. Are you involved enough to care about the people sitting around you? Do you call them if you don't see them for a couple weeks? Are you aware of the needs they may have in the situations of life? Are they ill? Are they having struggles with different people? You know, if you don't get involved with people, then you don't really know where they're at to be able to help them. And then this whole business of giving is really about being involved with people. We take a benevolence offering today because it's Communion Sunday to help people that are actually in need because that's what John says. If you have material wealth and you see somebody that's struggling doesn't have it, you need to help them. That's why we help them. But if it goes way beyond that offering, it's all the offerings. It's the gifts. It's the tithes to help missions for those here at home and across the globe that need help. It's to keep the place open so we can have the programs that people need in order to change their lives. People that need help with addiction, going through divorce, grief share, uh, the various programs we have to connect people to each other, the Bible studies. These we all give to, to make a difference in our community so that we can be the people God wants us to be and get connected to each other in a way that helps each other. And if we're that connected, he says, you'll never have to worry about whether or not you're saved. Because I talk to people all the time who, who just aren't sure. How do I know I'm going to heaven? How do I know that I'm saved? What if I, you know, I go through all this and somehow the Buddhists were right and we were wrong. How do you know? Well, John says it in chapter 4. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For we don't love people we can see. How can we love God whom we can't see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. See, we are family. Paul calls the church a family. And your family 
is made up of the people who love you the most. It's also made up of the people you argue with the most. And unfortunately, it's also made up of the people who can hurt you the most. Because that's what happens when we interact with people. And the church is the same way. No one will love you like the people of God love you when they truly understand what it's all about. But we are people, and we will argue. It doesn't mean you've stopped coming to church because some people argue or fight with each other. The whole world is fighting with each other. What we show the people is when you fight, we solve the problem. We forgive each other. We move on. We still care about each other. We don't go out of our way to hurt each other. And we have a whole world that is hurting, that is betrayed, that is dying. And it wants to know, is there a place I can go where I can trust people, where people will genuinely care about me, not because I can give them anything, but simply because they want to help? Can my life really be different? Can it really be changed? Is there a group of people that I can be a part of and they will accept me, accept me the way I am and help me become a better person? That's what the church should look like. And we need to enlarge our circles. We need to include more people in them so we can get involved with people and know when they need help, when they need prayer, when they need some compassion. Not just judgment. We're pretty good at that one. But the actual help. That's the light shining in relationships. Next, John says, Save people are a light that shines through doctrine. The truth, chapter 2, verse 21. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. There will always be false teachers. There will always be false doctrines. They began as soon as the church began in the first century. And throughout the history of the church, it's been one thing after another. And we find false doctrines today as well. We've already talked about them a few weeks ago. Everyone, John says, who denies that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God, don't listen to what they say, because nothing they say is going to matter because they don't have the truth. The truth is not in them. But the Holy Spirit does lead you to the truth of who Jesus is. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And once you truly understand that Jesus is our Savior and Redeemer, it makes a difference in your life. Verse chapter 4. He says it's this way, as we 
Holy Spirit leads us as we read the word, as we pray, as we reason the scripture together. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. See, John is saying false teachers always get a big crowd because they're saying what people want to hear. And the minute you begin to appease people and say what they want to hear, you're going to stray from the gospel message. Because the gospel message is often what people don't want to hear because it means you have to change. It means you have to give up your sin. But we have all kinds of teachings now that people want to hear. They want to hear if I become a Christian, am I going to get wealthy? Am I going to prosper? Am I going to have everything I want? Am I going to have great power through the Holy Spirit to cast out demons and, you know, heal people and do all kinds of things? Because it's all about me and what I've got. And uh, everyone's going to be saved eventually. So don't worry about these little things you do wrong. Oh, you might die, but, you know, don't let that stop you. You, you can get saved even after you're dead. You know, because sin is not a big deal. It's not that, not that important. A lot of teachings to make you comfortable where you are. But the gospel of Jesus Christ won't let you stay where you are because you're not like Jesus yet. We've all got a long way to go. And so the Holy Spirit is going to keep moving you towards being more Christ-like, which means you're going to keep going out of your comfort zone every time he reveals to you those areas of your life where you need to change, where you're not doing it the right way. See, truth is a narrow way. It's a hard way, and we have to accept that because if we want an easy life and think once we're saved, everything should be a blessing, we're not really understanding what it's all about. It requires a change of attitude. It requires a change of our habits, many times a change of our friendships, and it can bring persecution. It can bring suffering. It can bring hardships. We're not guaranteed an easy life but we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he says, keep going that way. Because as the light shines through doctrine and the true teaching of the gospel, the fourth one, he says, when we have it in place, light shines to the world and begins to make a difference. Chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, we simply have a different value system 
than the world does. We're putting treasures in heaven, not putting treasures here on this earth. Because if you hold on to what you have now, you're going to lose it in eternity anyway. On our cruise when we were in Pompeii, if you've ever read anything about Pompeii, you know it's an old Roman city that was destroyed by a volcano back in the first century. And they have people that were caught in the, in the thing, and they're in the museum now. They've kind of mummified and all the treasures that were there. But the guy said an interesting thing, I thought. He said, you know, when you see the people that were, were captured, that the volcano captured and, and, and they're still there, and you see all that they have, understand not everybody in Pompeii was killed. The only people that were killed by the volcano were the wealthy people. All the poor people left. But the wealthy people stayed because they were afraid that the poor people would sneak back and loot their homes and take all their stuff. And so they stayed with their stuff, and they all died. So you can get so connected to what the world has to offer that when destruction's at the door, you can't even see it because you're more afraid of losing what you've worked for than to understand where Jesus Christ has taken you. We don't live for this world. We live for the next. And he says, keep on. Amen. (laughs) And he gives us these words of encouragement in 2 John, verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you will receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. Don't wander away from from the faith. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you can probably name some people who you at one time thought were some of the strongest Christians you had ever met, and now you wonder what happened to them. For one reason or the other, they're not serving the Lord anymore. They're not coming to church anymore. They're off mad about something or just living for the world, and you wonder what happened. Well, John says their salvation was in question to start with because they didn't continue. They weren't regenerated enough to be the people that God wanted them to be, and they gave up the faith. So he says, don't let that happen to you. Jesus predicted it would happen in one of his parables. He said the seed will fall on hard ground, thorny ground, weedy ground, and some on good ground. So don't expect everybody to make it through to the end. But don't keep your eyes on people. Keep your eyes on Christ. If you have your eyes focused on people, you're going to get disappointed and you're going to get hurt. Because people aren't perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. We have to guard our hearts so that we don't fall. We keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, who's the author and finisher of our faith. And when we keep our eyes on him, we are never disappointed. And we will finish the race and have eternal life. The way to keep yourself assured of your salvation 
is to take opportunities like our communion supper this morning to do what the Apostle Paul says, and that's examine your heart. I'm going to ask the deacons and elders if they'll prepare to serve us our communion supper at this time. It's not a closed communion service, meaning that you have to be a member of the church here to take communion, but we do ask that you are a member of the body of Jesus Christ, that you understand what it means to have your sins forgiven through the blood, that you know the cross. But Paul said in his words to the Corinthian church, we should be aware of what the bread and the cup actually mean. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us at the cross so that we could be the light to the world. And if there's anything in our hearts that is keeping us from being that light, we need to talk to the Lord about it and confess it. And it would be much better if you confessed it to the Lord on your own before he exposes it to everybody, and then you really have a problem. So as the bread is being passed and hold it until we can bless it together, take this opportunity to talk to the Lord and examine the kind of light you are. Are you a light shining on sin? Or does sin still have a place in your life? Are you a light shining in relationships? Or do you really not care about the people in church? Are you a light shining through doctrine? Who wants to study the word and know the word and live by it? And are you a light shining to the world to make a difference? People are looking for a family of people that are different. And we should be that group. So examine yourself, as Paul says, while this bread is being passed. And then we will bless it together in the name of the Lord. Don't turn your back on the cross. Jesus Christ loved us enough to save us. And we love each other as he loved us. Let's go with his blessing today. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And may the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your heart and mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in his grace and tell someone about Jesus Christ this week.